0: Welcome to KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Monday, February 27th of 2023. I'm your host, Alexis Kenyon. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear about a push to upgrade wildfire resilience building codes across Colorado, and then CityCast Denver sits down with Denver Post reporter Noel Phillips to imagine what the metro area would be like without the Suncor refinery. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. Then it's a public affair with Jim Williams of the Community Foundation of Boulder County. Then at 9 a.m. we'll bring you Counterspin, a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. After that, Leland Rucker will be in the Boulder studio for the morning sound alternative. That's all still ahead this morning. But first, these headlines with KGNU's Stacey Johnson.
1: A Boulder County District Court judge ruled late last week that the American Civil Liberties Union lawsuit against Boulder's enforcement of its camping ban may proceed. Plaintiffs backed by the ACLU filed their lawsuit against Boulder last May, alleging the city's camping ban violates three provisions of the Colorado Constitution involving cruel and unusual punishment, the right to not be placed in danger by the state or government, and the right to use public space in a manner that does not harm other citizens. Attorneys for Boulder filed a motion to dismiss the ACLU lawsuit in June, arguing that the camping ban is a means to prevent tent cities that are a public health risk. Judge Robert Gunning ruled the plaintiffs may have a case when arguing that it's cruel, unusual punishment to ticket people for sleeping outside when shelters turn them away. However, the judge dismissed the ACL complaint issues involving the other state constitutional provisions. Although the judge upheld the ACLU issues centered on Boulder's blanket band or the ordinance that prohibits living or sleeping outside while using any cover or protection from the elements other than clothing, the court dismissed complaint issues involving tent bans, which prohibit sheltering or storing property outside under a tent or temporary structure. With the February 23rd ruling, Boulder has 14 days to answer the original lawsuit, and the case now moves towards trial. The Well County District Attorney's Office has dismissed a second-degree felony assault charge against a Platteville police officer, Jordan Stanky, who last September locked a handcuffed woman in a police car parked on railroad tracks. While officers were searching the woman's car, a train then hit the police car and seriously injured the woman. The woman sued the Platteville Police Department and three officers in late January, alleging they failed to keep her safe. Prosecutors did not reveal in court records why they dropped the assault charge. Citing pending litigation, a spokesperson for the Well County District Attorney's Office declined to provide comment to the Denver Post why they made the decision. Stanky still faces other charges, including felony attempted reckless manslaughter and misdemeanor reckless endangerment. The police department has placed Stanky on administrative leave since the incident. Another officer, Pablo Vasquez, who parked the police car on the railroad tracks, faces five misdemeanor counts of reckless endangerment. Platteville Police Chief Carl Dyer said on Friday the department fired Vasquez in December. The city of Boulder is moving forward with a program to support middle-income residents to buy homes. KGNU's Jake Crowley has more.
2: The city of Boulder is considering a program that would help subsidize a down payment on a home for households meeting income qualifications. City officials say the goal of the program is to support middle-income families during the midst of rising housing costs. The program, as pitched to the housing advisory board last week, calls for funding that would allow the city to make no-interest down payment loans of up to two hundred thousand to qualify middle-income households in exchange for an appreciation cap on the property. To qualify for the proposed program, prospective home buyers would need to earn no more than one hundred twenty percent of their area median income. City officials behind the proposal plan to present it to the city council in April. For KGNU, I'm Jay Crowley.
1: Longmont firefighters responded to a fire around 5 p.m. Sunday that destroyed eight units and eight cart ports at an apartment complex at the 1200 block of Francis Street. A Longmont Public Safety spokesperson told the Times Call Sunday evening no one was injured from the fire, but the agency had not determined the number of individuals displaced. Crews contained the fire around 7.30 p.m. and have begun an investigation to determine the cause. Coloradans receiving benefits under the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, or SNAP, program can expect an average $90 per person reduction in food stamps starting in March. This is due to the end of an emergency increase in assistance which began at the start of the pandemic. According to the Longmont Leader, Boulder County will have $1.8 million less to work with as part of its food stamp program. Wine is hitting grocery store shelves this week. KGNU's Jack Armstrong has more.
3: Grocery and convenience stores with a license to sell beer can start also selling wine come March 1st. Colorado voters narrowly approved Proposition 125 in November, with 50.6% voting in favor of allowing grocery stores to sell wine at their establishments. The stores that are planning to sell wine straight away are Trader Joe's, Safeway, and King Supers. Safeway has already prepared their shelving to carry their new installation of wine products, even though those shelves won't be stocked until Wednesday. The Colorado Licensed Beverage Association directly opposed Proposition 125, as they represent over 1,600 independent liquor stores. They say independent liquor stores have the selection to outsell grocery store chains, but a third of their represented liquor stores are in danger of losing their business because of the instated ballot measure. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong.
1: For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be sunny with wind gusts as high as 34 miles per hour. Denver will reach a high of 55 degrees. Today's high temp for Boulder and Fort Collins will be 52 degrees. Tonight will be partly cloudy for Boulder and Fort Collins with a low of 26 degrees for Boulder and 22 degrees for Fort Collins. Boulder has a 20 percent chance of snow during the overnight hours. For Denver, night skies will be clear with a low around 28 degrees. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson.
0: You're listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Alexis Kenyon. Wildfires are a concern for Colorado homeowners who need to buy insurance, but how do they factor into building codes? A new bill introduced into Colorado legislature would create a board to regulate wildfire resiliency building codes across the state. Joining me now to discuss this new legislation is one of the bill's sponsors, State Senator Lisa Cutter of Jefferson County. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So to start, tell me about this bill, SB 23166. In practice, you know, how would it work? Uh,
4: well, we're setting up a code board with professionals from all over the state, you know, people that um, who this will impact and who know a little bit about the issue. There'll be 21 board members, and then they will be tasked with determining um, what really constitute the, constitutes the Wildland Urban Interface for the purposes of this, um, for creating a, struct, a building structure code. And, you know, taking feedback and, and um, you know, basing it on good data and science. Like, as we know, this is changing rapidly. The, the, the WUI, we call it, Wildland Urban Interface is changing rapidly and fires are impacting more and more of Colorado. So we want to We want to examine what that really means and how do we um, set building standards in the areas that are at the highest risk.
0: Well, what types of codes are already in place when it comes to making structures, you know, less vulnerable to fire?
4: Well, it's kind of a patchwork, honestly. Um, Counties and municipalities are able to adopt um, best practices and, and the international code There's an international um, fire code that they're able to adopt, but it's only in, um, it's at their discretion. And so some are doing great and some need a little help moving along. And, uh, you know, fire, we need to have a coordinated approach to this. Fire impacts all of us throughout the state and we kind of need to get on the same page.
0: So would these building codes only apply to new structures or would it go into existing structures?
4: No, they apply to they would only apply to new structures. And there's a time frame for them to be adopted and all that we're not springing this on anyone so that they have to, you know, immediately shift gears if they're in the middle of um, building, uh, building a home. But um, you know, we, oh, it don't, and the other thing, I guess it would impact um, renovations. We're still kind of settling on um, the percentage or exactly how we're defining that specific piece. We've been asked by stakeholders to um, narrow that a little bit. So we're working on that language. But when you're doing a, a, you know, reasonably substantive remodel, say replacing more than a certain percentage of your roof, then it, it just makes sense to adopt the new code moving forward. So
0: is this something? i mean can a house or a structure be fire resilient i mean what does that actually look like does that mean like metal everything or do you have any examples of how that would practically
4: um well no no i mean metal's the extreme right I yeah i mean that was an extreme yeah the gold standard it's a metal standard call <laughs> metal but, but um There's, there's all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of ways to harden. There's, you know, trex, dexing, there's, there's, um, concrete, different kinds of, um, asphalt roofs. There's, there's all kinds of, there's a spectrum. And so this board would have to sort of determine what makes the most sense and would set minimum standards. And then, um, areas would be incentivized to, um, to go further in the code. But so that could look like a lot of different things, but I will tell you that newer homes with more fire resistant materials fare better. We've been finding research all over that these um, in prone areas, that these homes that are, are newer construction have done better. For example, in the Colorado Springs um, Waldo Canyon fire, the Cedar Heights neighborhood, would, it was in the direct path of the fire, but it was heavily mitigated against fires and um, spared saving an additional, it was spared and it saved an additional 250 homes. Huh. So there's real data and there's real um examples in the field of homes that are either I mean both They're heavily mitigated that that's you know one tactic especially for existing homes um, but then for new builds having the newer uh, construction materials and more fire resilient construction materials makes a tremendous impact and you know we're asking firefighters to put their lives on the line all the time many of these firefighters and in these uh, wildland areas in particular are volunteers and they, you know, they're out there, their home may burning be burning down the road, and they're out there risking their lives to save homes. Hmm. So we need to do everything we can to um, to give them, uh, you know, all the tools they can to do so and protect themselves and their neighborhoods.
0: Okay, so we only have about, you know, one and a half minutes, so I'll try to make this quick. Yeah. But my final question for you, here in um, Boulder County, many families are still in the process of rebuilding from the Marshall Fire one of the initial controversies that arose in the rebuilding process had to do with green energy codes in Louisville. Many residents support green energy energy codes in theory, but found in mm-hmm. practice that they added significant cost burdens to the rebuilding process. What are some mechanisms that the state could enact to con- to cushion the financial blow of making structures more resilient to wildfires? Are they going? Is that what they're going to be doing, or is it just? Rules.
4: Well, that's a great question. So so we've done a lot um, to provide grants and things for mitigating existing homes. There's, there's many, many programs in place to do that type of thing. But in new builds, you know, I cannot speak to the energy code. I mean, of course, I'm familiar with that, but I'm not um, up to speed on all the data around that. But in terms of fire, using fire resistant materials, We've, um, again, kind of taken a deep dive and studied this a little bit in crafting this piece of legislation. And when all costs, a, na- a national, st- one national study showed that um, new home builds, uh, when they're built to wildfire resistant codes, can be c- constructed for roughly the same cost. And when all costs were considered, the fire resistant construction was 2% less than expensive than typical constructions. Hmm. So, so it's not exactly true that I'm in. And again, that's the energy code. Um, I'm going to I'm going
0: to have to jump in here because we have to wrap yeah. up. Um, I've yeah. been speaking with State Senator Lisa Cutter about SB 23166, a bill she's co-sponsoring that would establish a board to create statewide wildfire resilience codes and buildings located within the wildland urban interface. Senator Cutter, thank you so much for speaking with me.
4: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: A series of incidents in late December forced the Suncor refinery in Commerce City to shut down for weeks. The refinery is reviled by environmental activists and neighbors for its history of polluting our air and water, but it's also responsible for about 40% of Colorado's supply of gasoline. So what if the shutdown was permanent? Denver Post reporter Noelle Phillips has been covering Suncor for years, and she's on today's CityCast with producer Paul Caroli to explain the current situation.
2: So, Noel, I think we have to start by defining our terms here because people say Suncor a lot, but what exactly do we mean when we say Suncor?
5: Yeah, so Suncor is a big oil refinery in Commerce City. And when you drive down I-70 and you look to your left and you see all these smoke stacks, sometimes there's flames coming out, that's Suncor.
2: And for more than 100 years now, this refinery has been... Something of a boogeyman for environmentalists, for neighbors and the neighborhoods that have grown up around it. But something happened in late December that kicked off a string of incidents that feels different. Can you tell me about the series of events that started on December 21st?
5: Yes. So if everybody remembers, December 21st is when we had that like really severe, really fast temperature drop. It went from 42 down to five. And it was one of the biggest one hour drops in the National Weather Service in Boulder's history. And so Suncor experienced a malfunction that night. Most of us didn't know anything had happened until the wee hours of the morning on December 22nd.
3: Colorado's only oil refinery is shutting down for months. The company's saying equipment was damaged leading up to Christmas Eve due to the extreme cold. But there was also a fire at the plant around 11 in the morning on Saturday, leading to two people being hurt. Right now, it's unclear how serious their injuries are.
2: This is the second incident at the refinery this week. Just two days ago, the alarm was activated, but everything was deemed safe. Apart from the cold snap, have you been able to learn much more about what actually happened inside the refinery that week? What went wrong? Why those two people got hurt?
5: Well, it's a private business. It's um, based in Canada. And, you know, they're not subject to FOIA or CORA. Those are the federal and state open records laws. So they don't have to tell us anything. In the past few years, because of the public pressure about pollution coming out of the refinery, they do have a public notification system. So I've signed up for the alerts. It's like on December 22nd at 2.50 a.m., My phone started beeping, and so that was when I first knew something was wrong with
3: Suncor. And now Suncor is saying the entire facility will be shut down and put into safe mode to allow for inspection of all units and repairs to damaged equipment there. That's expected to be completed within the first few months of next year.
2: There was a a reported leak of benzene from one of the plants. Should Denverites be worried about benzene?
5: Yeah, so that's a... um, byproduct of the uh, refining process but you don't want to come in contact with it in large quantities because it um, can make you pretty sick
2: right and that brings me i guess to this other aspect of the shutdown that i remember was a big conversation back when it was first announced people were hopeful people were excited about this at least some environmentalists were that this shutdown might mean less pollution lower environmental and public health impacts on the area did we see any of that
5: Yeah, everyone really hoped that, oh, they're going to shut down for three months. We will experience what three months of no emissions from Suncor is like, and we will be able to compare our air quality for these three months to the air quality, you know, the prior three months when it was active. Well, that's not really how this works, because as they're over there trying to get everything rolling again, they're going to be emitting pollutants into the air. And they indeed have been. They have like certain levels of all these chemicals that they can release. And when they go above that permitted a level, that's called an exceedance. And so there's been more than 30 reported exceedances since December 21st. But the problem is, and it's, it came up last week at a Commerce City Council meeting is we don't know what the cumulative effect of it is. So if I live in Commerce City a half a mile from the refinery and I'm constantly breathing this stuff over the long term of my life, what is it doing to me? And that's something that I don't think anybody really has a grip on.
2: So there haven't been any long-term health surveys? You haven't seen anything Mm -hmm. like that? I'm Mm -hmm. shocked at that, actually.
5: Yeah. And... You know, there is a. the state came in and told Suncor, you have to monitor your air quality and they call it fence line monitoring. And so they're making Suncor put up air monitors at certain points along the perimeter of the facility. And these things like rotate and catch constantly catch air samples. But then the state came in and told Suncor, all right, you're doing this monitoring for these things, but we want you to expand what you monitor. And Suncor didn't like it. And there's a lawsuit pending over that. Suncor has a private company that they've hired that has these like sniffers and a big van and all these computer consoles, and they drive around the neighborhood, pulling in air samples from time to time, and then put up what they say is in the air. And then there's a nonprofit called Cultivando that has also runs air monitoring and has an air monitoring station in the neighborhood to catch what's coming out. And so there's dashboards online where you can go look, but they're really complex. And I have a hard time looking at them and I've been looking at them for a couple of years now. So, you know, if you don't have a PhD in, um, chemicals or chemistry or whatever, (laughs) it's really difficult to discern like what it is. And, but that I think is supposed to like, take a stab at like the continuous flow and what's coming out of there and like gather a cumulative effect.
2: Let's talk about the other side of this, the the economics of, uh, of this whole situation. What has the Suncor shutdown meant for the local economy?
5: Well, uh, the most immediate impact for all of us is gasoline has gone up a dollar a gallon, and the federal government's report attributed it to the Suncor shutdown. So we're wow. paying higher gas prices than almost anywhere else in the country.
2: By a dollar per gallon Mm -hmm. because of one refinery. Mm -hmm.
5: It's the only fuel producer that's in Colorado. And 35 to 40% of all the gasoline sold in the state is made at the Suncor refinery. So without that product flowing into the state, we have to get it through pipelines or truck it in.
2: What do you think life in Denver would be like without Suncor?
5: Well, We've learned now that gasoline would be more expensive um, and it's already expensive. And, you know, with groceries higher, rent is so expensive. It would be a serious economic question for people who need to drive, you know, to go to work, get kids to school, that sort of thing. Like what would that do to household budgets? Um, It's a fair question to ask. And is it worth it? Another thing is, is You know, they've been refining gasoline over there for nearly 100 years. And when they started refining gasoline, the EPA wouldn't come around for another four decades. Hmm. So what's in the ground over there and what do you do with it? And also, because we wouldn't be refining gasoline here, there's pipelines that come in there. We would need those pipelines to bring in fuel and so now you've got this, like, the plant's closed, but look at it. Like, what do we do with that? And how much would it cost to clean that up and turn it into something that people could actually use? And could you even do that?
2: Well, do you think there's any chance of this actually happening, of, of a, a Denver without at some sometime in the future?
5: Uh, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, you just think about like a company whose business is to make money for its investors. And it's very profitable. An analyst told me that it's in the it's ranked in the top five most profitable refineries in the United States. I think for any company, that would be hard to let go. And it, they've got a corner on the Colorado market because it's the only in-state gasoline producer. And they have like up to 40% of the market, which is huge. I mean, at some point, perhaps there's enough public pressure and politicians finally give in, but there's just so much mon- money and the oil and gas lobby is powerful. Yeah, we still like to drive our cars in America. And so, yes, yeah, so while it contributes, like all of this oil and gas production and refining contributes to climate change, I don't know in my lifetime if that's going to go away. They can put more stricter regulations on it. Technology can improve and maybe reduce the impact. But I don't, mm, I, I just don't know about that just completely going away. Hmm.
2: Well, Noel Phillips, thanks for, thanks for joining me and breaking this down.
5: Yeah, I hope it helps people understand a little bit more about Suncor and what it does.
2: One other thing Suncor is doing is restarting. After a six-week shutdown, the refinery in Commerce City is expected to be fully back online by the end of March. How soon will that lead to lower gas prices? Only time will tell. You just heard an excerpt from CityCast Denver, the local Denver Daily News podcast. Learn more about subscribing to the podcast at denver.citycast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: That is all for today's Morning Magazine. Special thanks to Stacey Johnson, Jack Armstrong, Juanita Urdado, Jake Crowley, Shannon Young, and CityCast Denver for their contribution to today's program. I've been your host, Alexis Kenyon. If you'd like to comment on something you heard on KGNU, you can leave us a voicemail at 303-447-9911. We'll play those messages back on Tuesday during the Morning Magazine. Stay tuned for a commentary with Jim Hightower, and then it's a public affair with the Community Foundation of Boulder County. That's all coming up after the news headlines from the BBC.